right, as the kids are dismissed, the handouts are being handed out. I think I may have said that we were going to get back to Genesis this week, but I need a little more time. But I do want to encourage you to read. Uh, Pastor Tad will be preaching next week, so in two weeks we'll get back to Genesis. But if you want to read ahead, kind of get an idea of what's going on, this is what I'm picking up. So if you get to uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 12, 9. Okay, so you can be reading that in the next two weeks. Genesis 11, 27 through 12, 9. And some things that you can pay attention to there are, I believe what we have here is our first Exodus pattern. You say, well, Exodus doesn't come until the second book of the Bible. Well, consider that Genesis is written in the midst of the Exodus, right? So think about the story of Abraham as it is being told to the children of Israel as they are on their Exodus. There are a lot of connection points in this story with the Exodus. And so consider what it would mean to the children of Israel as they are in the wilderness getting ready to enter the promised land to hear this story of Abraham. And then consider who are the blessed and who are the cursed. Okay. And and then, so consider that passage. I think it's Acts chapter 9-ish or something when Stephen is stoned uh, to death. His recounting of this story tells us a little bit. It informs us a little. So you can read in that passage as well. And Stephen Stoney. And then uh, consider what it would mean for us. Okay, so we want to consider the original audience and then we want to consider what it means to us. So look for those uh, Exodus connection points. Where's the blessing? Who are the cursed? Right. Because we've got the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent. Who are those people that has to do with the blessing and the cursing and that type of thing. And. Lord willing, I'll come back with some good applications of that in two weeks. Okay. But as we look today, today's going to be a little different sermon. I'm usually an expository sermon preacher. I like to pick a text and go through it. But today we're going to do a character study. And we're going to do a character study on the Apostle John, the disciple Jesus loved. Have you ever, have you ever thought, like, Does God really love me? And then some of us may have thought, well, I know the Bible says God loves me, but does he like me? Right? You know, we we can feel pretty unworthy. And I know uh, growing up in uh, the church that I was in, uh, in West Virginia, in the Presbyterian church at that time, uh, I grew up with a thinking that all the Bible stories, they were all told with a moral background. And this is probably due a lot to me, not necessarily my teachers or anything. But I just remember thinking, like, everybody in the Bible is supposed to be, like, perfect. And, and like, I'm not. Right? And, and in actuality, the only perfect person we find in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Right? But we can be, you know, if, if we have selected teachings and things like that, we can grow up thinking, well, everybody else is perfect. And... And so when when John calls himself five times in John's gospel, he calls himself, he doesn't name himself, but he calls himself or refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when I first read that, after becoming a Christian, I'm like, well, yeah, that's, 
that's a little bit arrogant, right? I mean, it's like, well, does he not love the other disciples? Or, you know, what's the deal there? Why? Why? And I think that John really is amazed that Jesus loves him despite him. And I think that's the picture he paints. So today I want us to look at the disciple Jesus loved, the apostle John. And uh, I've given you different scriptures on your handout. If you want to turn to them as we go, we'll be in Mark first, the Gospel of Mark. John was from a, a stable fa- family financially. Now, why do I say that? Well, he was a fisherman. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 20, it says, When Jesus had called uh, James and John, that's his brother, <clears throat> it says in Jesus immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So apparently the fishing business was good enough. His dad had some employees. So that's why I say that he comes from a stable business. I don't don't think that we could necessarily make the implication that he was like a rich, snobby kid because he actually was working in a fishing boat. And uh, a lot of people like to fish for fun. Uh, working as a fisherman doesn't doesn't sound that appealing. And then one one time when uh, Tad the dad took me fishing, we went up to a shrimp boat and got a bunch of chum. You remember that? And he said he said just let us do this, right? And I'm like, no, I'll help out. And then I'm like, mm. you know, it's, it's it doesn't sound like that glamorous of a job, and it smells even worse. Let's just put it that way. So. John, though, was from a pretty stable financial family. But look at chapter 9. Let's, let's just look at uh, some passages that kind of give us some insight into the person of John, his characteristics. <clears throat> Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. And there we read, John said to Jesus, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I put it this way, John was judgmental, right? They're not, they're not following us. They're not doing it the way we do it, Jesus. And uh, we might say in our day, he was more concerned about his clique of friends and how they were doing uh, following Jesus than he was about Jesus' kingdom. He thought that they were the only ones truly following Jesus and if anybody else was following Jesus, they would do it just like they were. Right? Kind of, they weren't measuring up to his standards. And, and he says here, if you're not for us, then you're against us. That's his thoughts. But Jesus taught him that the one who's not against us is for us. And so, like for us as a church, there are other churches that preach the gospel. And we, we rejoice in that. We're not the only ones that have it right here in the valley. And we're thankful for that. Uh, we don't want to be a church or a disciple of Christ that says, well, you've got to do everything our way, right? 
So we want to make sure that we're right on the gospel. And then we have our convictions as Baptists that other churches that believe the gospel differ on. And that's okay. They're, they can be a part of their church and we can be a part of ours. That's okay. They're not against us, right? We're not battling with them. We've got, we've got spiritual warfare to do. We don't need to be concerned about other people who are preaching the gospel well. But John was judgmental. And it, and it goes on, if you look over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. Jesus is, says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So they're getting ready to journey towards Jerusalem. Jesus knows the end is coming, but it's not the end. He'll be taken up. He'll be resurrected. But he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. It's like, oh, you're not you're not coming here to be here. You're just passing through. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they were filled with compassion and said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. I put it this way. John was militant, right? He was militant. He was ready for a fight. When he talks about calling down fire for heaven, that recalls when Elijah went up on a mountain and the king wanted him to come and see him and they sent troops out and he called down fire from heaven and destroyed the troops. And that happened twice. And then finally a smart general came and begged him not to destroy his men, but to come with him. And then Elijah went with him. But... John here is ready for a fight. If others weren't going to treat his friends nicely, then they were going to pay. This request to be allowed to tell, to have fire come down from heaven reveals John wanted the power to do what others could not. Jesus, they must think they're better than us. Let's show them who we are with a shock and awe campaign. Let's leave them smoldering in the ashes. John wasn't tolerant of those who weren't friendly towards his group. He wanted to see them destroyed. He was militant, quick-tempered, if you will. Look back to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Here we see John desiring preeminence. Mark 10:35 And James and John the son of Zebedee sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him Teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask you And he said to them What do you want me to do for you And they said to him Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory Jesus said to them You do not know what you're asking Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, they're thinking prominence. They're heading towards Jerusalem and they're thinking, hey, he's going in as the king. It's good to be a friend of the king. It's good to be the right-hand man of the king. It's good to be the left-hand man of the king. Hey, Lord, these other disciples, 
we know you like them too, but like we're really the best ones, right? Put us, number one and number two, in your kingdom. John was desiring preeminence. He wanted to be recognized as the greatest disciple. John was ready for a battle and he wanted to be the five-star general of the troop. He was judgmental. He was militant. He was desiring prominence. And it's no wonder that Jesus called John and his brother sons of thunder. They were, they, 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 they made extravagant demands. They were big voiced guys. You knew what they thought. And it's in this passage that Jesus then begins to teach them that if you want to be great in his kingdom, you serve people. He's like, if you want to be great among the disciples, then you need to serve all the disciples. And if you want to be number one, you serve everyone. And then right after this, a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, calls out to Jesus and and he Jesus responds to him in the same way he did to his disciples. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Blind beggars, they don't, you know, on the, the hierarchy chart of the world, blind beggars are pretty low on the totem. But Jesus was the greatest and he came to serve. And that's the lesson John needed to, li- to learn. He's desiring the preeminence. That's the kind of guy John was. But then, then John encountered Jesus. He was judgmental. He was militant. He desired prominence until he met the Lord Jesus Christ who loved him enough to confront his sinfulness. John encountered the Lord Jesus Christ who loved him despite his sinfulness. John encountered the Lord Jesus Christ who loved him enough to die on a cross for his sins. John encountered Jesus and he was never the same. Never the same. Don't know all of you here this morning and all of your experiences, but it's my hope that at some point in your life you encountered Jesus. And someone shared with you the fact that you are sinful and that you have fallen short of being resurrected into the presence of God. You're, you fall short of His glory. That's what happened with me when my cousin, working on my car, shared with me the Gospel and how I was sinful. And that's what the Bible said about me. And I knew it was true. Then he shared with me that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of His people. And if I would repent of my sins... and Trust Christ as my Savior. He would forgive me of my sins and He would give me His righteousness and and He would save me and I would become one of His people. Because despite the fact in Romans 5, which describes us as uh, weak, ungodly sinners who were enemies of God, despite all that, Christ died for us. What love that John, despite... Who he was, Christ hung on that cross for him. And despite who I was and the wicked man that I was and all the sins that I had committed and the times that I had rebelled against God and the times that I had fulfilled my desires, despite God saying they were wrong, he hung on that cross for me. He died for my sins. And if you'll repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins will be paid for in His death. And His righteousness will become yours. 
And you will encounter Jesus and you will never be the same. You won't be perfect yet, but God will begin a process of changing you into the image of His Son. Making you more like Jesus. And you say, I can't do it. I'm I'm bound in my sin. Yeah, you're a slave to your sin. Repent of your sin and let God deliver you from that. Because He can change you. He can give you a new heart and new desires. And He can give you a new church family that can come alongside you and help you to walk in His ways. Oh, won't you repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior? I hope you encounter Jesus today because you'll never be the same. John encountered Jesus and he was never the same. He became concerned for the helpless. Look at John chapter 19. Let's look now at John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. John became concerned for the helpless because Jesus told him to be. John 19, verse 26, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus here is making sure that his mother is taken care of. Now, the Bible tells us it's the responsibility of children to take care of their parents, right? Their families are supposed to take care of their parents. And and Jesus had other brothers that could have taken care of Mary, possibly. But Jesus chose to let his brothers, who eventually followed him, to become elders in the church of Jerusalem. And John, who had followed him was given the responsibility to care for Jesus' mother. One would think that all of the apostles would be used to go out into all the world and spread the gospel immediately. But that was not so. Jesus picks John, who desired to be a general. I mean, you remember? Put me at your right hand, put me at your left, right? He's the one that stays and makes sure Mary is taken care of. Now, later, certainly, John traveled and did spread the gospel, but his first task was to take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. John became concerned for the helpless. The Bible describes widows and orphans. That's a way of describing those who are the weakest in society. It causes us to lose our concern for people. And let me just put it this way. Taking care of your parents is gospel ministry. Taking care of your parents is gospel ministry. And John becomes concerned for those who are weak. I commend some of you that I know who have cared for your parents and are caring for your parents right now. That's a good thing you do. And I know it seems sometimes that you're like, boy, there's more I could do. That's okay. Don't kill yourself with guilt. One of the apostles that followed the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, his first task was to take care of Mary. You're doing gospel work. So John became concerned for weak people, but he also became unconcerned with worldly pursuits. Look at 1 John. Now, this is 
in one of the books. So go back. If you don't know where it's at, go back to Revelation and just start turning back a few pages because it's there towards the end of the New Testament. It's not a very big book. But 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we have a very good definition of worldliness. What does worldliness look like? Well, the Apostle John gives us a great description. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle John realized his desires for power and preeminence and After encountering Jesus, he's now unconcerned with those things. He realized that he was caught up in these things. Now he's unconcerned with worldly pursuits. He was instead concerned with serving his Lord. The world teaches us through its actions and through media that we are to pursue our desires, do whatever feels good, Follow your heart. All those things. We are desire, our, follow our desires or pleasure. The, Lord, the, the world uh, tells us to seek preeminence, popularity, power. And the world teaches us to be proud of ourselves. Do something and be proud of yourself. But those are worldly pursuits. We're to put those away. And maybe you find yourself, even as a Christian, still seeking those things. Seeking to make a name for yourself. Hey, stop. Make the name of Jesus great. John became unconcerned with worldly pursuits. But then he also became patient with those who were usurping authority. He became patient with those usurping authority, probably because he was so concerned about being put in a place of authority. He, he like, I get it, right? And, and so if you look to 3 John, it's just to flip a couple pages, it's probably one page in your Bible, but 3 John, look at verses 9 and 10. There's this guy, Diotrephes. He's, he's taking control of a church and he's kicking people out of the church and and he the guy that that uh, John wrote his letter to he's concerned for him, but he says this in Third John chapter nine. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come. I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So like missionaries that were coming, 
People wanted to welcome him, there, him into their home, and Diotrephes wants full control, and he says no. And if you if you let those people come in your home, you're out of the church. I mean, he is just a demigod. He's he is taking control of the church. But John is patient here with him. John doesn't call a curse down upon Diotrephes. He doesn't call down fire from heaven on Diotrephes. He doesn't even encourage the person that he's writing to to undermine Diotrephes on his behalf. John says he's going to handle the issue himself to the church when he gets there. He didn't shrink from his responsibility, but we can see in his reaction a greater patience with those who were like himself in his past life. John became patient with those usurping authority. And then John became known as the apostle of love. We often refer to him as the apostle of love. Not just the apostle Jesus loved, or the disciple Jesus loved, but the apostle of love. Look back to 1 John chapter 4. John's giving a series of three tests in the book of 1 John to see if one is a Christian. One, do they believe the truth as given about the gospel by the apostles? There's a truth test. And then there's an obedience test. Is there a changed life? Are they, are they not walking in worldliness anymore, but following the Lord's commands? And then the third test is the love test. Are they loving people they wouldn't normally love? And he writes in 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Christ loved us so much He came to be the propitiation. It's a a word that means the satisfaction of wrath or the offering that satisfies God's wrath. And I've shared with you before, men, you may have had the time when, you know, your wife says, do you know what today is? And you really don't know what today is. And it was an important day, you know. And you forgot. And now you're in trouble. And she's upset with you. You've really ticked her off. For whatever reason, like, I, I don't know you, but your wife does, right? She's upset, and, and it's going to take more than I'm sorry. You're going to have to show that you're sorry, and you may go out and you get some flowers, and you get some, or you might get some chocolate or some jewelry or something like that, or maybe all three with some ice cream. And you come and you knock on the door because it's locked. And she finally opens the door and she's frigid, ice cold. But she looks, she looks at you and you say, I'm sorry. And then she looks at the gifts and forgives you. 
Because she can tell you mean it. Well, beloved, Christ came and He gave Himself for our sins. Because He loved us. And when we trust Him as our Savior, God looks on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and He forgives us. Because Christ is the offering that satisfies His wrath against our sin. And no one is too far gone. What love. And if He loved us that much, to save us from being the people we were, we ought to love others. Even when they behave in ways that are unlovable. And we need to love people who we used to not love. Right? Birds of a feather flock together. That's the world's way. The church is a mixture of people that we wouldn't necessarily hang out together if we were just in the world. We've got businessmen, we've got laborers, we've got we've got Hispanics, we've got Anglos, we've got old people, we've got young people, we've got we've all these different groups of people. What do we have in common? One Lord, one baptism, one faith. We are united in Jesus Christ. And we love one another. And some of you are a little hard to love. Okay? And that's the point, though. Like, if we're just in the world, we don't hang around people that are hard to love. This is the church. This is not the world. We love them because Jesus loved them. Just like He loved us. 1 John 4, look look at chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus said this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you what? Love one another. Why do you suppose John here commands believers to love one another? Well, let me ask you another question. For those of you who are parents here or had kids, why why did you have to tell your kids to do something? Because they weren't doing it naturally. Right? Right? We have to be told things that don't come naturally to us. It's natural to love ourselves and look out for ourselves. It is unnatural to love people who are different than us just because of Christ. Believers don't become perfect when they are saved. They still have the warts of sin in their lives and they must go through a sanctification process where they're conformed into the image of Christ. But we're commanded to love one another because we are hard to love. 
John himself was a hard person to love. He was judgmental. He was militant. He was desiring preeminence. But he encountered the love of Jesus Christ. The love that died for him, a helpless sinner. So it only makes sense that those who have been loved by God in such a way should then love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We should love one another because we should all understand how helplessly sinful we were before we encountered Christ. John was a helpless sinner who encountered a loving God and he was never the same. He became a loving disciple who only wanted to please his Lord. What about you this morning? Is there someone you're holding a grudge against? Is there someone you're avoiding? Love. Love. Work through it. Maybe you're here and you realize you're a helpless sinner. That's why Christ died. Oh, I urge you again, repent of your sin and trust Christ as your Savior. Have you encountered the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you enough to die for you? And have you been changed into a loving disciple who wants to please his Lord? John was changed. Let's go live a changed life, Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the example that you gave us in John, the disciple whom you loved. And I hope we see that today that you love John despite John. And Lord, did you love us despite us? What love is this? Vast, vast, deeper than the ocean. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for our sins. I pray, help us to love one another in such a way that this world sees and marvels and glorifies you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.